Hello and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Remember, we are available on the Financial Mail online and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. Typically, the South African news cycle is hectic. Whether it's bullying judges at the JSC, burning down famous buildings, running immigrants out of the country or just insulting each other, the news is on fire all the time. On the energy front, Minerals and Energy Minister Guerra Mantasha has begun to flag loudly in case no one's listening that he believes foreign funders are engaged in a plot to cripple our economy as local activist groups chalk up court victories against old fossil fuel energy sources like coal and oil and gas that he prefers. It's easy to make fun of Mantasha and easy to forget in the process that he's very powerful and sometimes to forget that he may actually have a point. So I have as my guest today David Nichols, former chief nuclear officer at ESCOM, and now chairman of NEXA, the Nuclear Energy Corporation of South Africa and regulator of the nuclear industry here. I love talking to this guy. I once asked him if he had any fears about the safety of nuclear power, and his answer uh, shut me up really quickly. No, he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, David, so forgive me. I was chief engineer on a nuclear submarine in the Royal Navy, and I sat on the reactor in heavy seas. David, welcome to Podcast from the Edge, and I apologize if I did exaggerate your underwater life. And I know we agreed we'd talk more widely than nuclear on this podcast, but I want to ask you, first off, in 2017, opponents of the Zoom administration's plans to acquire nuclear power plant from Russia successfully had the process halted by the courts. In your view, three, five, four, five years on now, was that a good thing? Well, first, a correction, uh, Peter. First of all, a correction. Uh, the, the nuclear program at the time, uh, despite all the um, uh, hullabaloo, was actually an open tender process. The Russians might well have won, but they might well not have won. So it was an open tender process. So, yeah, it was a mistake. We, we, we are now sitting with a desperate shortage of power, and it's going to get worse in the next eight years. Well, we can do little about that. When you say there's, we can do little about it, is that because we didn't take the nuclear option when it was on the table? I didn't think nuclear option, but the, the point is it takes about 10 years to move, in any major project to move from a decision to do it to um, the um, actual power into the grid. And so anything we now do is going to come online in the late in 2030 onwards, and our crisis is going to be getting worse till then. Also, by the way, Nexa does not regulate the nuclear industry. That's NNR. That's not ah. we get regulated by them, so we are in that game. Well, we'll come back to Nexa because it's interesting. But yeah, let's just talk. Let's just talk energy because I know you've got strong uh, views on where we should be and what we should be doing. Well, I, th I, I think if I might, and, and you've asked me to give me a very open discussion, I'll, I'll put the, the current belief system says that renewables are the cheapest and the way to go, and that everyone says, uh, and it's very interesting. Last year, the government went out to tender for two different projects. One was the Renewable Energy IPP Bid Window 5, and one was the Risk Mitigation IPP program. And everyone points at the risk at the RE IPP 5, which came in at the lowest one was at 40 cents. Um, whether they'll close or that's a different discussion, but 40 cents a unit, which clearly is a very good price. And everyone says, you see, renewables are cheaper. And then you've got the, the risk mitigation IPP, which came in at the lowest was one round, over one round 40. And the upper range about one round 70, one round 80. And everyone says, you see, that's the nasty, vicious power ships. But the trouble is that the RMIPP was actually completely technology neutral. It just said, you've got to make power for us quickly. 
and you've got to do it whatever cost is. But you've got to produce power when we want the power produced. In other words, it must be dispatchable. Whereas the arc, the, the, the reap bid window five was we want wind or in solar. So they're two exactly in the time frame, the same time frame, same technology costs. And what you're looking at is a difference in the cost of pure energy. That is, I want a, a lump of energy given to me sometime whenever you feel like it to power on demand, which is, and the difference is clearly something like one rand more expensive. And so there we're sitting in a situation which says the current viewpoint that is politically correct, which is that renewables are a solution with a little bit of gas, and that's really the cheapest option, is not being borne out by the reality on the ground. And you can see it also because I heard from a, a, a source that, that, that the, for this 100 megawatt IPPs, there's actually been no, no applications yet. None. And the reason is very simple. Because if you turn around to me and say, I'm a mine, I want a 40 megawatt supply, which is the obvious thing everyone's talking about. I'm saying 40 megawatts, whatever it is. Um, you turn around and say, okay, 140 megawatt supply. Um, that's great. Um, I'll put PV panels up. And then you say, but what happens when the sun's not shining? So you've got to go to ESCOM and say to ESCOM, I need a backup contract, which guarantees 40 megawatts when the sun is not shining. And the trouble is that the actual cost of power, you and I are both sitting in, a, in rooms with, tele, with lights above us, and we're both paying around 2 Rand 50 a unit. I'm guessing a number here, but let's say 2 Rand 50 a unit, of which 2.50 cents is the price of energy. To rand is the capacity factor, the ability to produce it when you want it. So the reason no one has gone for the 100 megawatt renewable projects, because that's fine as long as you only want to mine when the sun's shining. And you can't ask ESCOM to be available to supply when your main supplier falls over at the current tariff, because the current tariff is not geared around that. So what we're looking at is a structural problem of understanding of the power system. Um, and everyone's missing these other features that they assume. Because if people tell me, and they do tell me, but the future is small mini grids and ESCOM's a dinosaur, and that is a standard sort of statement in many cases, that's fine. In which case we don't need ESCOM, in which case we'll shut ESCOM down. Like telecom is now in danger of being shut down completely. But who cares? And the answer is nobody's replacing ESCOM. They're, they're cherry picking the bits they like out of it. So, how do, David, how does this all resolve itself? I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, and and um, you know, if ESCOM were to close down tomorrow, we'd all be in terrible trouble. I think I'm not sure, but I think that somebody made a calculation about how many hours of no electricity it would take for the country just to re to revert to, um, you know, the jungle uh, in terms of our behaviour. It's not, and it's not very many days. Um, so, how how does how do you, in your mind, how do we resolve as a society the um, the politically correct options and the harsh reality, as you describe it, of um, you know the fact that that nobody's applying for the for the hundred megawatt um, IPP because it's one too expensive and and. You know, if you're going to do solar, there's no solar at night when you are 2,000 feet down underground digging. What's, what's the answer? Well, 
I think you have got to go back to the beginning, if I may, if I may Peter. Uh, I'm sorry to go drag you back into a bit of history, but I think it's important to understand that the time frame of, dis, of the, the response time of the utility is like 15, 20 years. So decisions you make now will have an effect 10 to 15 years in the future. They have little effect next week. And the problem was that in the middle of the 1990s, there was a, a politically correct view in the world that the dinosaurs of the power industry were the regulated utilities. And we should go to the free market. The free market would drive this beautifully. And so what really happened is there was a belief that the model that the world had had from the 1920s through to the 1980s, which was that of a centrally regulated either state or, 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 or semi-state utility, um, was inappropriate for the future. And so it was closed down. And this country was closed down by the 98 energy policy, which said Eskom will build no more power stations. The free market will do it. And I'll use this as an example, but it applies elsewhere. California is now having load, load restrictions. California is not a poor country, and they pay a lot more power than we do, and they've got load restrictions going on because of their design of their grid system. The UK just had its power ta- its tariffs increased by 52%, and about half their, their distribution companies go bankrupt. So the model is not too stable at the moment in the world. But let's go back to South Africa. So what happened to us was in 98, ESCO was told, do not build new power stations, do not build anything, the free market will build it. And so ESCOM was then withdrawn from the marketplace. ESCOM was, was corporatized in the sense we had three different divisions, which had their own boards, exactly as they're doing it now. Um, and ESCOM was told not to build. So ESCOM aggressively brought down its headcount, closed down its engineering organizations, closed down its, its project management organizations, and waited for someone to apply to provide power to a customer through the grid. And nobody did. Um, and then in... Um, 2004, Alec Irwin became Minister of Public Enterprises, and I understand that he 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 went to Eskom and he said, "Excuse me, I've read the 90 Energy Policy, and it says that we can be out of power in 2007. Is that still true?" And Eskom said, to "Alec Irwin, yes, the low growth projections still carry on. We're still growing about three and a half percent a year demand growth. So, yeah, that's still true." And he said, "Well, okay, what are you doing?" to stop the lights going out in 2007. And Eskom said, we've been told to do nothing. <laughs> we've explicitly been, the free market is supposed to do this. And so the answer was quite simply, Eskom said, um, Alec Irwin said, well, what's the free market doing? Nothing. So the answer was, well, shouldn't you build Eskom? And in about three months, Eskom went from having got a single person in the company whose job description included plan and build new power stations to be, get, to be instructed to go and build the two biggest plants in, in, then virtually in the world. And within 24 months, we're on site with bulldozers. And you may wonder why any project that starts that way, you've got a problem. And I, I heard said, I may be untrue, but I heard said um, that the original estimate of the amount of concrete in Madupi was one third of the final value. Right? Yeah. Um, there was no planning because there was no planning because we've been told not to plan. So catastrophe. And then at the end of 2008, Eskom said, okay, we're back in the builders again. We'll start building up our industry. We'll start getting things going. And Eskom in 2008 said we had then planned to build nuclear one, nuclear two, coal, th- coal three, coal four, the second pump storage scheme. There's a whole pile of planning of what's doing. That essentially was abandoned at the end of 2008 because the tariff structure didn't support us to do that. So we've been struggling with Eskom capacity sitting with no capacity on it. So to answer your question, 
of what do we have to do? We have to go back and revisit that and realize that, and this is a very controversial statement, that the, 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 the world's belief that the free market forces will keep the lights on is no more true now than it was in 1930. That you've got an industry which has a product with a, with a millisecond lifespan. In other words, the generation capacity in this country one second ago was what's making the light now. You can't store it, essentially. Or you can build machines to store it, but they're expensive. That your investment cycle is 15, 20 years in the future. And that it's a utility for society. It's not something which you can assume will come to click. Because the other problem that's fundamental to the economy and is destroying the economy is that building an industrial plant take, let's say, three two to five years to build the reasonable plant from decision, final decision to actually making product. The power industry works on probably a 10, 15 year horizon. So what we've had since 2007 in this country has been that anybody talking about, I want to build a new heavy industry plant, which is our economy basically, has been told you can't have the power. Now, if you believe in the new version of IPPs and renewables, that shouldn't be an issue because I should be able to build my power, my, my little power station next to my factory. So why is it not happening? With cell phones, they changed the world. Power, power, the, the mechanics of power haven't changed over the last 30 years. And so, and so if you're a, let's say you're Anglo-American and you, and you need that power when you need it, uh, it may not be when ESCOM's got it, um, and you now have the ability to um, to generate 100 megawatts of your own power, um, and you're not doing it. What do you what what, calc what calculation are you making that makes it not worth it? The cost of power. I go to somebody. I say, I want. Let, let's take the example. I'm, I'm now go. I'm now Anglo American. I want to build power. So I go and I in the market and I say, someone will build me a power station. And they go, yes, someone will build you a power station. Well, first mm -hmm. of all, what power stations? Forget that for the second. The first comment will come from the uh, first question. We need a backup contract with Eskom yeah. because I'm building one power station because I have a bad day. You know, our machine could break for some reason. Be it, even if it's a, a coal-fired coal station or if it's a gas station, you've got to have some maintenance regime, so you need to have Eskom backup. But the other problem is that I, want to, I, I need at least 10 years of PPA to make it worth my while to build this thing. I need guarantees. PPA? I'm now building your, your power station. Peter, you're, you're now Anglo-American. Anglo I'm building my power station next to your factory for you. Yeah, okay. I will want to have, I reckon I'm going to have a payback period of, say, at least 10, maybe 15 years on my plant. That's being optimistic. So you have got to give me a guarantee that you will keep paying my bills for 15 years. So if I'm Anglo-American, I don't build it myself. I find you to do it for me. Yeah, and I say, give me a 15-year guarantee. Yeah. And you say, not interested. I can't guarantee the market that far ahead. So what actually happens is Anglo-American builds their plant in Outer Mongolia. That's the problem. But what happens here? What happens here? I mean, when do we – why don't we in, – in, in, in which case, what do we do? Do we pack up and go to Mongolia? I mean, do we leave? Do we shut down? Do we stop dreaming, stop hoping? No, we, we, we change our policy and we start actually building something that will make power. And for all the complaints about Madupi and Kassili, and they're, and they're clearly, there was all the learning problems of building a first of, you know, in, in a century first of the country for, for many years. We've got to start building plant. I'll give you an example, and I'm being very uh, localized here. Um, one of the few things in the world is, can you raise money to build something? And the nice thing about nuclear power stations is, 
They're like buying brand new motor cars. You know, BMW offers you finance with your motor car. Um, if you build your own motor car, you don't get finance for it. So, so the nice thing of nuclear is that you'll get finance from a sovereign state. Um, I'll give you a bigger question in terms of transition. Forget about your problem. And Pumalanga does three things happen in, in Pumalanga, in my view, economically. They, they dig rock out the ground. It's called coal. They burn that rock, rock in power stations. That's called the Escort power stations. And they grow mealies. Well, if you don't do anything in Mpumalanga, all they'll be doing is growing mealies in 20 years' time. I'm not sure we can write off a province that easily. Perhaps I'm old-fashioned. And putting three solar panels and a wind turbine on top of the, 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 the debris of Kamati Power Station does not make, in, make, make grow, growing industry. And if you want to manufacture something, then my answer is, so what you do is you, and this comes back to your opening comment about Gwedi Mantashi, um, is... In my opinion, and this is a very personal opinion, you end up building a series of small modular reactors and you end up with a program to replace the current coal fleet in Mpumalanga with a fleet of small nuclear reactors on the same sites, which gives you industry, it keeps the economy growing and it makes power. Well, you used to you used to be part of, or if not in charge of, the pebble bed modular reactor that, um, that uh, ESCOM once owned. Um, and we tossed that into the bin as well. Yes. Would it have worked? Lack of faith in ourselves. Yes. Well, the Chinese just the Chinese just synchronized their first, what you would call a PBR, to the grid in Shandong province in December. And where did they get that technology from? Uh, well, the, the technology, the overall technology has been around for some years in the world, but they were heavily involved with South Africa. I, I've been over there before now a couple of times to talk to them. Uh, I was there in about 2016 to see them. Um, I know him well. Um, and so it's quite likely, it's quite likely for it forward of the small, and it's the, it, of interest in terms of the whole discussions of small modular reactors, and you heard that discussion knocking around as the new exciting small reactors. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk in the UK. I think Rolls-Royce is involved with, um, with that. Yeah. But it's, what's interesting is the small modular reactor concept came out of PBMR. Yeah. When we first put PBMR on the table as a 100 megawatt machine, we were told by the industry and by the IEA, by the UN body, that you couldn't exist because they decided that large reactors were 1,200 megawatts plus, medium reactors were 1,200 to 900, and small were 900 to 600, and 100 didn't exist, so we couldn't, we couldn't be a design. Um, so in fact, PBMR in South, from South Africa was essentially the first SMR. The world is looking at small modular reactors across the world now, but the problem is uh, but the only one that actually is now synchronized to the grid is some Russian small modular reactors in, this, in Siberia, and uh, the Chinese high temperature gas core reactor, the PBMR lookalike. Actually, if you want to and say, you got to touch something, that's what you're going to touch. The rest are paper studies. Now, if that's the solution, I mean, how capable are we of making it happen? I mean, the, PM, the PBMR was a South African concept and a South African innovation. It never got, um, it never got to sort of lift off. Yeah. But uh, presumably, at the time, there were some pretty clever people working on it. Do they still exist? Are they still here? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, some examples of Safkin technique. I mean, the, 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 there's, a, there's a U.S. Uh, reactor project called X-Energy, which is a PBMR lookalike, and its chief technology officer and head, in, head of engineering, those two guys are both ex-PBMR people, Safkins. Um, there is um, Kairos Energy, which is another one which is going forward, which is a similar sort of technology, but it uses a slightly different approach. Its head of engineering is a South African. Um, there is even an American project called um, 
what's it called, um, ultra-safe nuclear USNC, which has its engineering offices in Centur- in, in Pretoria, right? So, no, we're, we're in the game. Um, and, and 140 of the engineers that commissioned the new Abu Dhabi reactor uh, from Kuburg, Um because they pay more money. Um, so, yes, the skills are there. But the answer today, if, you, if someone asked me today, and this is a personal comment, not next, is, is I'd say the logical thing is to say to someone like Chinese, we want to join venture to do these things in Africa. Will you help us get it set up? Because they've got the design, they've built it. They've overcome those problems of when you build, like Madupi Kassili, the designs are fundamentally sound, but when you get to put the details, get in the way sometimes. And when you've actually done it, you can say, I now know how to do it. And so in a very real sense, you know, they're getting the... The Chinese as partners would be the obvious choice there. But David, now, I mean, as things stand now, official policy of which Gwede Mantashe is uh, the custodian is the Integrated Resource Plan, the IRP, twenty nineteen. Yeah, and and it and it plans or 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 yeah, it plans for almost the opposite of what you're suggesting. No, um, it, it, it's got two and a half thousand megawatts of nuclear in there. Well, but that's simply an extension. That's simply extending the life of Kuburg. No, 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 no. no, no it's got two things in there. It's it, 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 it's got progress the procurement of two and a half thousand megawatts of new nuclear and continue Kuburg twenty years more life. So on the in the in the update, certainly the certainly the, well the document that I'm looking at doesn't 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 say that. But but okay, let's assume uh, the one thousand nine hundred megawatts of Kuburg is is. Uh, extended for however long, 2050 or whatever. Um, so there's room in the IRP for how much new nuclear? Well, that, well, that's the stupid thing about the IRP, is it only has a detailed plan, a commissioning date, up until 2030, right? Yeah. And given it takes at least 10 years for a massive nuclear, new project, be it hydro or be it big coal or be it nuclear, or even be it natural gas in a sense, more than 10 years to come to fruition, then, in fact, the plan is silent on what really should be being done in the next 10 years. It's talking about the delivery in the next 10 years. Yeah, well, that must be the diagram that I'm looking at. And, in fact, you'll find the government's the, the, the nurses agreed to the, to the 2,500 megawatts. Um, in fact, nurses, nurses' reasons for the decision to support the Section 34 determination for the nuclear 2,500 megawatts explicitly says, forget your modelling for a second, lads, um, if you want to keep the lights on, you need something which is dispatchable. Let me give you a thought, if I can, Peter. In the last few years, we've seen load shedding, which has crippled us, we think. right? Here's a question for you. What's the highest percentage in any given year of desired power that ESCOM hasn't met? In other words, we take ESCOM sales for the year, and you work out how much it's load shed. How much is load shed as a percentage of the, of the, des- of the whole desired amount? Yeah. I don't know. And what I'm saying is of the sales that ESCOM's made, the megawatt hours that ESCOM sold to customers, it has shed about 1% in the worst year. Right. In terms of load shedding, right, it's worth bearing in mind how little load shedding we've had to cause uh, catastrophe in the economy. So come back, come to, come back to, to nuclear. So nothing, there's nothing in the IRP um, until 2030. Now, if there's more, if there's more to come, up until 2050, great. It's got to be small modular plants. Well, it hasn't got to be small. It could be any. It could be, it, 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 I, let me say, if somebody said the government's now got this two and a half thousand megawatt project DMRE is running, and my best estimate is that, assuming that goes as 
reasonably fast as it can, not insanely fast, but reasonably fast. Um, the first machine will be on stream about 2032. That's the scale of big projects. Same as a coal station. And, and I believe natural gas wouldn't be that far ahead of it, oddly enough, of big size. So the IRP records a decision to commence preparations yeah. um, for a built nuclear program. Um, yes. How far is that? Where is that now? Do you know? That is at a state where the um, the the ministers ah. issued a request to the to, to NERSA for a Section Thirty Four determination. Uh, NERSA has a, has had a public participation process and has agreed to the Section Thirty Four with a couple of caveats that are very which which are not significant. I mean, they're, they're significant, but they're not difficult to to meet. What um, is Section Thirty Four? Section 34 is the approval of NERSA that we can... The minister issues an edict called a Section 34 determinations. We will build this kind of power station. So okay. whenever, when the RMIPP came out, for example, yeah. that yeah. there was a Section 34 determination by the minister which said, we will do this. Yeah. And to do that, Section 34, to, he has to have the agreement or the consultation with NERSA. So that's the... And that was the thing which tripped up the... Nuclear in 2017, because in the, the judge said, my interpretation of that is that you should not have done it without public the public participation. Um, so that yeah. it's going forward, and minister has publicly stated in his in his speeches that he intends to issue the request for proposals um, by the end of this financial year. That is by March. It might be a few months later, I think. But that's intended. And that would be that would be proposals for nuclear plant. Up to the to the to the capacity of two and a half thousand megawatts. That's the that, that's what it says. Yes, which would logically conceivably be and, and 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 again, if you're asking for my opinion, and I must be careful, this is Dave Nichols' opinion, not absolutely. No, no, I'm asking for your opinion. Yeah, I, I would assume that the obvious thing to do would be, would be to put two more one thousand megawatt machines at Kuburg to support the Western Cape, because when, since Kuburg has been built, the demand there has doubled, and the Western Cape is now entirely dependent on the power lines down from Highfelt. Um, and also to build the first of class of a small modular reactor as the beginning of a program to roll out small modular reactors to replace the coal fleet as they come off. So two new units at, at Kuburg would, would be roughly 900 each, yeah? Uh, probably about 1,100. Each? Each, yes. Because Kuburg's being re-rated. When Kuburg, come, Kuburg was nine, sent out 900 megawatts a few years ago, we changed the... the, the um, Steam turbines, that moves them to 930. Uh, when they bring it back with the new steam generators, it'll be 965 each. And when they uprate the plant by 10%, which is the plan and is currently modeled, then it'll be something like uh, 11, uh, 1,050 megawatts a unit. Yeah, your remaining, your remaining sort of um, uh, requirement in the range given then would be about 300 megawatts for... Yeah, whatever mini yeah. nuclear, and that will be slightly more at risk. The ones in Cape Town will be very simple. They'll be sort of—I mean, not simple, but they'll be—you buy it off the shelf, you get guarantees, no debate, and you get a PPA for those, yeah. and they cover the costs. And then you do the same thing for the SMR, but it'll be a slight yeah. more risk in that because it is reasonably new technology coming out in terms of deployment. Do we write off um, renewables completely? Then I mean, they're just simply not a not a viable. Um, way forward, we 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 have a we in terms of base load, we look after nuclear, we build some more coal, and we're going to add some gas into that mix as well, I presume. 
I'm, my reading is that I'm sorry bit, if I get a bit, bit, bit explain where renewables come in the market because it's important. They, yeah. if you build a renewable system, you've got to match it with the backup system for when the renewables aren't working. That's straightforward, right? So you've got system A, which is the renewables, and system B, which is the backup. And the trouble you've got is is that therefore the renewables are competing with the avoidable um, costs the operating cost, the avoidable fuel cost of the backup. So if the backup is nuclear, then you end up with renewables don't compete. So yes, I, my personal view is renewables don't make sense in, in, in any market and haven't done in the world as a whole. No one's made them work in that sense yet. Ask the Germans. And um, David, so that, but that would ignore possible um, innovations and advances in battery technology, I presume. Well, battery technology has now got to a stage where the cost of your battery is about 80% the cost of the materials going into it, the lithium, the cobalt, and so on. So the, the yeah. battery costs are currently rising in the world. And you've, you've learned as much as we can on the manufacturing and on the IP side of that. So what's happening with batteries is the battery costs. And I'll put a simple answer to you. Uh, Peter, do you, do you drive a motor car? Uh, yes, I do. I will argue very simply that if you look at your motor car, motor car companies are very cost competitive and they're prepared to do really high-tech things if they need to. In your motor mm. car, there is a black box called a battery. Yes? Yeah, Bob. It is lead acid, invented in 1859. <laughs> so Toyota is saying the cheapest battery in the world today that we can buy to put in your motor car is actually an 1859 development, and they build lots of those. One of the problems for me, people sort of, you know, ordinary folk like me talking to people who are experts like you and any expert, experts in renewable energy, experts in traditional sources of energy, you never agree on anything, you know. And I've got a, I have a report here from the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation quoting the Australian Energy Council last week. And it says that, um, that typical Australian residential electricity bill, um, uh, it was 8% lower in 2021 than it was in 1819 because of renewables. So where's the lie in there? Where's the, where's the trick in that? If they're saying that renewables have done that. The trick is very simple. When you've got a model, any model, I'm adding a model, then what you've got to do is somehow put real-world data and see if your model with real-world data gives a real-world answer. And then you can talk about changing the data to give you what your changes will do for you. So my answer is, please show me anywhere in the world where a low-cost grid has got unsubsidized renewables in it. It doesn't exist. It's a bit like Germany, where Germany is supposedly the solution to renewables, and um, they've got five times, between five and ten times the CO2 emissions of France and a cost that is like 50% higher than France. Well, that's the price of, of buying Russian gas as well, surely. No, the Russian gas is quite cheap. There's a whole the gas discussion will go on for hours, and we beat, we used a half an hour, I think. Okay, but uh, so okay. I'll come back on that one. <laughs> but um, the answer to the question is that if you're going to tell me that renewables are the solution, then my answer is you won't don't need a policy document. When when cell phones came in in 1994, the big question was for MTN and and and, and, and Vodacom was could we get enough LSM eight and nine users to justify the, 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 the um, cell towers going up. If you had told them in 1994 that, we'd, that your gardener would have one, you, you, your domestic would have two, 
and your domestic's grandson would have one, they would tell you out of your skull. But the reality is the whole technology of telecoms has changed because of technology over the with no policy decisions. The night the in Central Europe, Central Africa runs phone, uh, cell phone systems and no landlines. Because and that wasn't a policy decision, it didn't need policy, it would just happen because of it. So excuse me, if that's the case, then why are we even discussing centralized power systems? If renewables are that good. You know, just, I'm gonna, uh, thank you, David. Um, and as usual, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I wish uh, I could be um, sitting opposite you on the table because we'd have a we'd have a we'd have a pint after this. But vital discussion. We may still do that sometime soon. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm still on my I'm still on my New Year um, abstinence uh, plan, but I'm, I'll get there. I'll get to the end of it soon. I'm, I'm not meeting you until you've got off that discussion. <laughs> not until the end of February. But nonetheless, the thing that I wanted to ask is about about technology and about the speed at which things change. You know, batteries become, batteries look ridiculous now because they're full of inflammable um, uh, liquids and, and, you know, are heavy and expensive. But what if they change? I mean, if you were, you know, the day before the Wright brothers first flew an airplane, people would have said it was impossible. Yeah. And the next day it wasn't. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that's quite because people knew flying was possible. They had these indoor birds. Um, but... I'll put an answer to you. Yes, if someone invents something new, there's two things you talk about. One is development, where you can say, I know where this technology is going. I can hypothesize where it'll be in five years' time. And that's one discussion. But the other discussion is someone's going to invent something new. And I've no doubt when something new comes out, the world will change. So you're saying cheap batteries, about one-fifth to one-tenth their current cost, where they really break through in a big way. Um no one's showing any way of getting there, but maybe someone will invent it next week. It's about as likely, uh, but my view, it's less likely than fusion is to take off, which is, we know how fusion works. We just can't quite make it work at the moment. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because what you see in his history is that when a technology takes off, it takes off incredibly quickly. I'll give you two examples that are very real. Natural gas in 1989 was an exotic material and we couldn't get combined, and no one built combined cycle gas turbines. 10 years later, 85% of all the new generating plant in the world were combined cycle gas turbines. It was that fast the world changed. Nuclear went from being esoteric in 65 to by 1980, it was the biggest, on an annual basis, it was the biggest installed capacity going in every year. So it can change. To bring us the technology, it'll change. But at the moment, we must work what we've got today and what we can reasonably project in the future. Well, thank you, David, and thank you uh, very much for joining me, uh, you, the listeners. I really appreciate that, and I hope you enjoyed, David, because it's not often um, that we get to uh, give time and space to uh, the sort of establishment and the established view. Um, but I think it was important to hear the sort of unadulterated case for traditional energy sources. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, uh, David Nichols was able to join us. I've become um, really quite engrossed with the climate story. And if you don't mind, over the next couple of episodes of uh, Podcast from the Edge, I want to talk to more people involved in it all. Uh, I'll be back next week. And meanwhile, you take care of yourselves, be safe, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.